0: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Brian Hamilton of Deerfield Academy, and I'm excited to be joined today by Dr. Andrew Curley. He is a member of the Navajo Nation and an assistant professor in the School of Geography, Development and Environment at the University of Arizona. He's here today to talk about his book, Carbon Sovereignty, Coal Development and Energy Transition in the Navajo Nation which comes out today from the University of Arizona Press. Dr. Curley, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I didn't realize it comes out today. <laughs> <laughs> this is, it's such a fascinating book. Congrats on it. it you know, it's, it's one, I think, that really everyone who works in the field of environmental studies anywhere should be reading, and I expect to return to it myself frequently in the future. I'm hoping just at the top here, can we just begin with you sharing how you came to take this on as a research project?
1: Yeah, I am. Um... Started the inquiry into coal and the social life around coal uh, when I was uh, before grad school when I was working at the Diné College in uh, CLE, in the middle of the Navajo Nation, and um, this was in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, and um, at that time the Navajo Nation, the tribal government, was trying to um, uh, build a you know partner with some outside organizations to build a coal-fired power plant on the eastern end of the reservation this would have been the desert rock power plant it was this hypothetical project it never came into being but um but what what that showed was the politics around coal in the tribe in the navajo nation and um and i had just returned back from doing work on fair trade and some inner and thinking about questions of international development and i was thinking oh, how, does this, how, how is our coal economy tied to questions of development, uh, especially for tribes? And so I ended up uh, thinking about coal in particular for that reason. I saw that it was an important commodity that we were producing and selling, and it structured certain kinds of relationships around it, uh, both with the tribal government and environmental activists who were posing it, um, tribal environmental activists, uh, as well as non-tribal members. But uh, what was really interesting for me and what I really wanted to get at and probably the most difficult part of the, the research was to, to try to understand the perspective of coal workers Danae coal workers um, who participated in the industry, who often supported it, but not always, and, um, and who, um, you know, had could speak to the some of the tangible benefits of, of the of the work as well as some of the, the immediate costs. There are, some, there are different kinds of benefits and costs that occur to the miner, to the worker, uh, beyond what we talk about in these kind of larger scale questions of climate change or development, or even, you know, these are almost more abstract questions that we usually focus on when we're talking about coal. And, and for these workers whose lives are, are, are developed around it, um, you know, they have different kinds of concerns and we're and those concerns are not a part of the debate or in part of the conversation. So I, I really wanted to get a sense of what those were. And, um, and so I ended up just um, uh, working on this as my graduate research project, it was pretty much the same project that I started out doing uh, when I, I went to grad school and then did my dissertation field work. And so it's been a long time uh, coming to to get to this point. And it's it's interesting, because there's so much I wanted to learn and so much I wanted to document. Uh, but by the end of it, I couldn't get everything. And I had to, I had to stop at some point, and, you know, share what I found. And, and that came in the form of a couple articles and this book. And so that's what, you know, that's basically the, the life and trajectory of this research. But um you know these questions still persist and there and other people are taking them up in different settings and I anyway I just think that um uh so much has changed since I started the project on the energy landscape that um that when when I look at look back at some of the ways that people were talking about things from 2007 2008 I can get a sense of uh, of movement of social change and then think more historically about about this industry within the reservation and for our community. So, so
0: that's, that's how I started the project and that's how I became interested in this particular topic. Thanks. And I, and I definitely want to get back to the workers soon, but I wonder if we could move next to thinking about the theoretical approach you take and, and foundational to the study is, is your concept of, of carbon, carbon sovereignty right there in the title. Um, You build off the work of Timothy Mitchell and, and you also engage the debates about the utility of the concept of sovereignty in Native American and Indigenous studies. Could you just introduce listeners to the term and how you use it?
1: Yeah, I use carbon sovereignty to talk about ideas, information, to think about how the tribe has used its resource wealth or how it's even thought about resources as wealth as a way to determine their forward um progress to think about self-determination and the future survivability of people uh tribal members communities and and to defend against colonialism and so I felt like carbon sovereignty like you said it was it was building off of Timothy Mitchell's text carbon democracy well book I don't know why I call the text but Timothy (laughs) Mitchell's book carbon democracy and um And I I just thought that was a provocative idea to invert the question of resources on community. So like basically for the longest time, you know, we thought about resources as things that engender dependency or, you know, in his case, he's really tackling the resource curse thesis that places underdevelop where they prioritize certain industries at the expense of other kinds of development projects they might take on. Uh, when they are, are resource rich. and um, and I think what he argues is that, in fact, the resources made state making possible. And maybe that's not ideal. Maybe these states have a lot of problems with them. Some of them are very authoritarian and um, and and have all sorts of anti-democratic tendencies. But the point is like these these political institutions are, built on top of these resources in both like their material wealth, the, the set, the projection of wealth, the ideas of wealth that they generate, but also um, the ideology, the sense that these things are meant to be uh, for that nation and meant to be things that are um, that the tribe or the, the nation should develop. And so, you know, for me, I felt like that this framework was very useful it's used to explain, you know, I was trying to use social theory to explain things that I'm seeing on the ground. And I'm saying, Oh, look, you know, tribal officials, um, policy advisors, even workers, they think about these resources in a way that are is different from how um, sometimes it's described, even in the critical literature of dependency and underdevelopment and they're thinking about it more aspirationally mm-hmm. and in the fulfillment of self-determination in line with nation building and other social tendencies that are happening across indian country you know um trying to um trying to think about sovereignty you know this idea of sovereignty and how it's become meaningful for tribes uh post-1960s and so th- this was something that you know, I was trying to combine, you know, that that idea of sovereignty and how it's evolved over time across um, tribal landscapes, and then also to think about um, the way that resources play into state building that that Mitchell describes in his text. And I think that um, the carbon is useful because it also speaks to this anxiety of climate change, um, and so that you know that's what makes it different from just a standard resource narrative, in that, like, it's not just about resources, but also these ideas about what the resources do. Um, Not only for the exact for the nation, you know, where we are located, maybe the the strip mining that that might change the landscape, um, cause permanent damage might damage aquifers, and that sort of thing. But also like, you know, contributing to greenhouse gases, and global climate change. And so, you know, this is an important conversation happening in Indian country. Indigenous environmental organizers have brought this conversation into our politics. And so, you know, I wanted to try to capture that as a meaningful contribution to the topic of sovereignty. So it's not just to say like sovereignty in the sense of what we have the right to develop, but also sovereignty in the sense of what kinds of responsibilities do we have over these resources and i think this is a new conversation for indigenous nations and i felt like the term was helpful in explaining that i think there are some weaknesses that people will likely point out and there's a you know as soon as this book was like ready to print i saw a bunch of um a, a bunch of uh, conversation on twitter about how bad uh, timothy mitchell's thesis is which i, I don't really understand <laughs> i didn't really explore the arguments but it was like oh after i had already done this <laughs> a lot of people are critiquing but you know that comes in the territory okay, of yeah. academia so like you know which it, you know it's great to have those perspectives so um anyway um yeah so i am building on mitchell and i'm 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 uh building on um uh other works that are that are happening i think there's this another text that just was published that's parallel. Um, it's different history, different moment in time and different place, but it's like really interesting that we both kind of selected this idea of carbon as a, as a political act. And it was, um, it's, I think his name is Victor Ciao, and it's called carbon technocracy. Mm -hmm. And that book just came out last year. Like, you know, we, we must, must must've been writing in parallel so that it's kind of cool that that happened. I'm, I'm, I'm reading through his book right now, and he also builds off Mitchell. So we're both kind of doing similar things in different places.
0: One of the other very cool things that your book does is, is the way it approaches colonialism. And, you know, you push back against this conception of settler colonialism as monolithic as some machine that just steams across the landscape. And you write instead that um, in an evocative phrase that colonialism is a shapeshifter. So could you help the audience that doesn't know this history well, understand some of the shapes that is taken in Dene history in the 19th and 20th century?
1: Yeah, I think, I think it was like important for us to really think about the actual mechanisms of colonialism and how that plays out on every, on every day, on every day, um, within our reservation and every day, like tribal bureauc- bureaucratic practices. And, um, and, you know, I think the settler colonial literature is really helpful. I think sometimes it misses like the actual life of indigenous people, hmm. and the experiences of indigenous people like um, it's, it's focused on dispossession can miss like, what is, you know, what are people doing on the ground? And I, I I'm not trying to create a straw, uh, a straw person or a straw figure argument about what settler colonialism is doing. Um, what I do think is valuable. I'm trying to amend parts of it. So it feels less, um, stationary and where we can really appreciate things that I just felt, frankly, weren't being discussed in settler colonial theory like leases and contracts and and, um, and, and, um, and 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 agreements, even small agreements between between like county governments and tribal tribal governments, or like the the types of uh, a memorandum of understanding between Gallup Police and the Navajo Nation, you know, to to, to um, bring police from an ex from outside colonial police force onto the reservation in an effort to try to um you know make sure the roads are safe or in the in the in the mantra of public safety so i feel like there's so many things that are happening in indian country that get missed in some of these larger theories and then when i go to conferences um i found that there was this this um, division where like people doing indigenous geography, like their sessions weren't getting a lot of um, attendance and they were doing really good stuff, like really good in depth, engaged research in their community. Um, And then people who were non-Native talking about indigenous dispossession were getting a lot of audience, (laughs) you know, in using this idea of settler colonialism. And so it 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 felt like it was a blunt explanatory device. You know, like I think there's some, uh, anyway, so what the shape shifting kind of speaks to our, to our idea of threats. You know, what are the things that are out there that we, um, historically like using building off of our own cosmology and our own, our own theorization. Basically, um, how do we think about um outside threats? And if you go into Dené understanding of things, um, we have like complicated ways of understanding um both like what is good and what is bad. You know we often avoid these dualisms already you know that we're talking about avoiding in academia like there are like rich um uh deep uh thinking in in Dene philosophy to approach some of these questions and so you know i was building off of this i'm not i'm not a practicing hatahli i don't do i don't do like i'm not a medicine person or i can't you know speak to those knowledges like other people can but Uh, you know, I'm trying to, to build off of that as philosophy to think about what are how we think about negativity and how we think about risk and danger. And often it's these amorphous uh, threats that can come in the form of something good, but also contain bad elements. And, um, and so like, it changes in front of you. It's, it's like, um, it's like a trickster, like our, our coyote stories. You know how they how they come in and they try to tell you one thing and they're actually doing something else so building off of that kind of philosophy i was thinking like you know we should approach colonialism the same way we can understand in fact i'm not the first person that did it maybe i'm just uh one of the few people that have written it in this academic media like in this forum but if you go out if you again if you go to the reservation and you hear how people talk about outside threats how they talk about you know, the state of Arizona or, or, um, uh, Arizona politicians, they'll, they'll often refer to them as these kind of shape-shifting characters. So I was like, oh, okay. You know, this is, this is, this is very colloquial for, for our community. And, um, and I think like a lot of Diné people, Diné readers will understand what I'm talking about. And so, um, and so that's why I was uh, focusing on this was to show like the mechanisms of colonialism, Will look different at different times and in different places, right? And you gotta, you gotta think, you gotta really examine, you know, what are these monsters and really exam, like really study them, uh, before developing, you know, your attack on them. <laughs> and so like, you, that's that goes right back to our history. And so it's like thinking about, um, okay, what is it that? How instead of thinking about like you know Sherman and the U.S. Army and Kit Carson. Which are you know now we can all agree are, are colonial actors um, using violence. How, how do we in, how do we interpret the actions of Salt River Project like mm-hmm. a, a utility um, or senators who are proposing water settlements for the tribes? Like how do we anticipate those actions? Things that are like not directly related to land, but the management of resources within uh within reservation. Uh, spaces and so I think that was the, the reason why I wanted to move away from settler colonial theory and, and build an idea of, of colonialism that takes on different kind of shapes contingent to
0: the, the particular questions involved. You mentioned water right there and I, I want to go there next. We're, we'll get to coal. The book's about coal for sure, but you you argue that uh, you know we can't understand carbon sovereignty unless we in your words expand our understanding of the political economy of water in the southwest why is that? Especially with the Navajo
1: Nation and the Navajo experience, um, water is the fundamental driver of energy um, for the particular project I was looking at. So um, my story, I, I usually explain this point by my own trajectory into the research site. As a, as a researcher, I, I, I um, developed a, you know a, a project and I had a sense of what I was going to find and anticipated findings, you know, not necessarily hypotheses, but like I was building off of the existing literature, I was thinking, okay, you know, the water problem in the Navajo Nation is one where Peabody Coal uses or has used um, millions of acre feet of water for the movement of the slurry of coal from Black Mesa to Laughlin, Nevada. for the Mojave generating station. This all was decommissioned in 2006 and, and was th- demolished a little while after. But um, the point is that that's the critique of water so far of Black Mesa. And also that, that aquifer water was used in, at the Kayenta mine, like mining requires a lot of water. So I had that in my mind as if the water question. But then when I looked at the history of the mine, when I was thinking like, well, how do we get this mine in the first place? and look back at you know what what brought the mine to Kayenta and what brought the Navajo generating station to the Navajo Nation it was actually on um, the politics of water between the seven Colorado River basin states and it was about moving Colorado River water f- from where it naturally flows to to Phoenix and Tucson where it doesn't go you know it required energy it requires still requires tremendous amounts of energy to move that water uphill over mountains, then down into the salt river valley where Phoenix is and then into Tucson where I'm currently working. And that's, you know, that's done through pump and pumping stations and a lot of electricity. And this is some an infrastructure called the Central Arizona project. And it's the largest energy consumer today in Arizona. And so it, it needed a lot of energy to, 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 um, to work. And at the time, when it was being proposed and debated, both in Congress and, and in the executive branch, this would have been in the mid-60s, and Stuart Udall was the Secretary of Interior, you know, they were thinking they were going to build hydroelectric dams mm-hmm. um, just north of the present, or just north of the then boundaries of the Grand Canyon. Now those boundaries have been expanded, but, um, but they were going to build these hydroelectric dams. And, um, and th- that generated a lot of opposition from non native environmental groups, such as a Sierra Club, and they said, No, we need to preserve these places, right? It, it was actually like a form of conservation that was very focused on the aesthetics of the landscape and wasn't attuned to some of the, the inequalities or even what our environmental injustices, right, that language wasn't around at the time. And, um, and so these were white dominated organizations talking about heritage in terms of of settler heritage for like beautiful places in the West, like the Grand Canyon, and that that was their concern. And so they so ev- eventually Stuart Udall and um, and uh the environmental groups and the and members of the other states had to come to an agreement on a power source and they said hey you know we happen to know that there's a lot of coal on the navajo nation they need development they need jobs they need all of these trappings of uh of a wage labor and modernization that you know we think is good for them so why don't we put instead of these dams um why don't we put a coal-fired power plant on the reservation? That was an environmental win at the time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the Sierra Club thought that was great. And so um, and so that became, you know, the Navajo generating station and then the Cayenta mine. And, you know, it was origin point for uh, for the for the, um, the industry that I, you know, 40 years later was interested in looking at. And so um, and so moving water for Arizona, not moving water for us, but moving water for Arizona that was a basis of the coal economy in the Navajo nation or, or big pill or big part of the coal economy in the Navajo nation. And so, you know, I think it's fundamental to know that, to know that linkage in order to understand it. So that's what that sentence
0: is referring to. And then, you know, once, once coal's there, we get these policies that that look just perverse now. I mean, you note that today it is easier and quicker to get a coal mine established than to build a home on tribal lands. How, how did we get there? and And how, how was the place that coal came to occupy different from that of, of, other forms of mining on, on Navajo nation that, 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 preceded it, like uranium.
1: Yeah. Coal mining and oil, um, they are made easier to lease, you know, um, on federal lands because of, uh, congressional, le- uh, legislations, especially in the thirties, there's Indian mineral leasing act. Um, and, um, and that's basically what is the, that, that gives grants to tribe, the power to work with large companies like Peabody or BHP Billiton or Chevron, or, you know, these were the, 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 the mining companies that, that came into, there used to be a place, a company called Pittsburgh, uh, mining company, but then it was bought out by Chevron and, and they, they, they basically, um, you know these large energy companies are are the ones that um that can lease the land water and and establish royalty rates with the tribe and it's all worked out you know in these in these acts you know it gives it, it gives a path forward for that kind of development now um, if you're a an aspiring homeowner on the reservation and you want to build you know somewhere on your traditional lands there's a lot of there's a lot of laws in the way of that kind of development, and that goes back to um, livestock reduction that was mandated by the by the federal government in the 1930s. Kind of at the same time, you know, they're creating a lot of laws around how Native people could use their land, while they're making it easier for coal companies and others to come in and create leases to get at subterranean minerals, and so. You know, for those people who want to build homes, you have to get your land withdrawn from a grazing district. You have to get approval from a chapter house. Uh, You have to you have to then get approval from anybody whose names are on that descendants from original from the original Lisi going back to the 1930s, which could be a dozen or more people at this point. And then you have to finance everything yourself, including archaeological surveys, um, land surveys and those could be a thousand to two thousand dollars each before you even build a foundation or any other kind of basis for the home so like you know when i'm in tucson there's already homes built right all Mm -hmm. that stuff is cleared and zoned and you know i don't even have to raise a capital to build it like that's that's comes through loans right Mm -hmm. we all like in u.s capitalism we're all like working on debt and um and the navajo nation is interesting in that you have to have all that money up front before you can do anything. So sometimes, you know, we have this like feeling like there's not enough capitalism on we have too much of it, right? We don't have enough debt. We don't allow for enough debt. We, um, you know, we ha- we're all our all our budgets are in the black. <laughs> <laughs> and and we, we live in like the a, a GOP paradise, yeah, you know, right. like, there's no, you know, we don't fund any social services. We only, we barely fund any social services compared to the state or federal government. We don't have taxes, income taxes, and um, and we don't have um, we, but we can mine, mine the land um, and and uh, sign with major corporations for mining purposes. So often people drive by the reservations and they see that these places are impoverished and that the the houses look built um, shoddily, well, that's because people have to be, build them in piecemeal, like they're not built by one big one contractor, um, and they have to raise money each time to to add on to those homes. So, so if you want to, you know, it's like a Republican dystopia. Um, <laughs> I, I'm always thinking about like, you know, everything that the GOP is advocating for, like we already have on reservations. And it doesn't really seem to to to, to be in a, a kind of a political environment or economic environment people want to have. So anyway, just a just a thought, just a thought experiment when you're thinking about reservations. Like, um, you know, we're always in budget surplus, but that that causes
0: its own kind of problems. At the at the center of the book is the Navajo Nation Council's 2013 renewal of the Navajo generating station lease. Um, you were an observer of the council proceedings. Your father, I believe, was on the council at that time. Was he on the council at that time? Yeah, yeah. No? He was on the council during that time. And then you also, of course, interviewed officials that were not your father. And, also, uh, and, you were, and, you know, and you were struck afterwards by how the process played out so similarly to the original negotiations over the construction of the power plant in the 1960s. How do you explain this sort of deja vu?
1: Yeah, so this was something that was surprising to me because I felt I felt that things would be different. That was what I expected. You know, yeah. I was like, okay. And this was another thing that was a narrative issue. Like, you know, when you read when you read some of the accounts about mining and the, especially the dependency accounts, um, but not exclusively dependency accounts. Just like the history of of extraction in Indian country, you'll think, oh, you know, why do sometimes uh, writers try to answer that question. Why do your tribal travel leaders agree to these things? And then they'll say, though the, the solution is sometimes, well, they were duped or they didn't understand the contracts or there was some sort of misunderstanding or there were promised things that, that, that weren't there. And I, I don't think that's untrue. I think there is some truth to that. Um, there, you know, definitely the way things are presented are often skewed are always, almost always skewed actually. And, um, and so, like, you know, there's a lot of misinformation to tribal delegates uh, happening. And I, I imagine it was much worse in the in the 60s when um, when when as uh, I heard Nicole Horser to talk about this and I, I was agree- in agreement with her on this uh, recently about like the translators, the, the fact that you would have to have a lot of English translators at that time to explain different parts of the contract. And, that, and I was thinking, yeah, that's true, you know, um, but. But what was interesting to me is that, like, despite the fact that we have all of these people who have benefited from this ideology and this and, I, and this movement of self-determination and sovereignty uh, since the 1970s, you know, when, like, Peter MacDonald and other nations uh, formed the Council of Energy-Rich Tribes, and they were thinking about asserting their, their, their um, control over the resources in order to better their political positions, and... Um, you know despite all that change in rhetoric um you know we can't even change one facet of the coal lease that was originally agreed to in 1969 like nothing is amendable it's so it's so to me i was like wow you know that is really telling you know that this you know even though we know better like so you can't just say it's because we don't know it's because we can't it's because of the structural difference the power difference right And as I argue in the book, like it's because also because now the coal companies have the benefit of building on the dependency that has since, you know, that has since built into the coal economy, like the fact that people depend on it for jobs, that hundreds of workers work there, and that it it counts for almost 24% of tribal revenues or non-federal revenues. So like the fact that it's such an important pillar of Navajo economic life you know, gives them even stronger position over tribes than they did in the 60s. And so, you know, it's, it's, it, it was just really, it was just really surprising. And I, and that was what was, that's where the ethnography comes in. Like I was there watching these things transpire and watching council delegates try to amend the lease wanting to gain more rights in terms of labor guarantees. Navajo hiring preference, and also water rights. And these two things are shot down by Salt River Project who say, if you include these things in the lease, we're going to walk away, that was a threat that they kept using to the tribe, you know, and and so all of these amendments to the lease, in the end, fail, um, because of the fact that, um, that we, we're just in such a structural dependency on things. Hmm.
0: So as you mentioned at the top of the interview, you did extensive ethnographic work with workers in the in the Kayenta mine. Um, you know, you found that their work was not merely just for the source. You know, they, they valued their work not merely just for you know a paycheck, but it was it was a means to ensure, in your words, cultural survival. Um, how, how can that be? How in what way what can it be that? And, and then what else did you learn from them that surprised you?
1: Um, the co-workers, yeah, I really appreciated their participation in this study. I know. There was a lot of trepidation at first, and it was a political environment that was hard to enter. I mean, research-wise, it was very challenging, and um, and a lot of people were hesitant. A lot of people were suspicious of what I was doing and my motivations, and I think there was this problem of, um, of uh, too many people coming in and asking them questions, but reporting things that in ways that they didn't agree with and um, or using their experience to to talk against the mining industry in the Navajo nation and to that degree I think I'm class um, today I'm classified in that category I don't think co-workers are satisfied with my take on on this or not all of them maybe some you, I can't speak you know they're not a unified or hedge or like a homogenous voice but I know you know there's some misgivings on on it. So I tried my best to, to, to reflect, you know, their, their active support for it and, and why they, they felt like it was important for them. But um, getting back to your question, I think that um, what was interesting, what I did learn, and why I see it, why I use that term survival is, is because this is the language and the, the, the attitude that they were conveying when they were talking about it, like it keeps them on the land, it keeps them there and um, and they're able to take care of their family and I felt like that spoke to a different kind of relationship beyond just these economic linkages that we talk about often we're thinking about coal but more about um uh familial obligations it gets into notions of kinship uh indigenous notions of kinship and how um there's responsibility to different uh family members especially one person's uh making money and other people are out of work. Um, how you try to take care of extended family, and of course, this is not only true for Navajo or Native contexts. This happens all throughout the developing world. Kinship networks continue to exist and thrive um, uh, throughout the throughout the world, and and especially in the Navajo Nation. And so, I think that was um, something that was important to highlight, and to say, you know, th- it's not just about what you're doing, like oh, mining coal, but like how, you know, how you're distributing those resources is politics of distribution. Um, and, um, and that was really what I was trying to get at there is that it allowed them to, to fulfill those uh, kinship obligations, it allowed them to, to maintain home sites on the reservation. In fact, they mean, they were paid well, like they they earned a, a fair, a really good income Compared to other kind of jobs you can do on the reservation, like they were making more than I was, maybe by three times, as a grad student. So there was <laughs> there was like this, <laughs> you know, like I was coming in, like oh, you know, can you sit down for an interview? And I have, um, you know, like twenty dollars uh, to offer, and they're like that, you know, that's not worth their time, you know. They, so like it was, it was, uh, it was, yeah, it was interesting to to really get. So basically the people who did talk to me were volunteering themselves, which is, I mean, you know, that's, you're not trying to coerce people with money. So like, but like, you know, they are, they weren't getting much benefit from what I could offer, but they were, they wanted their stories. They wanted their perspectives to be told. They like went out of their way to, to like, let me interview them and ask them questions. And I felt like that was, you know, I really appreciate that. And, um, I know some people were hesitant and ultimately some people I couldn't follow up on, like I had some leads and nobody were and some people wouldn't return calls and that sort of thing. But, you know, I think under the right conditions, people were wanting to share their perspective on this industry in a way that, um, you know, reflects their experience. And, and, you know, I can't, I'm not them. So I can't explain that 100% correctly, but I tried my best to capture what I thought they were saying. So that was basically what the the workers' perspective on coal is in that chapter. Uh, what
0: I'm what I'm trying to articulate. The first environmental group on the reservation came together, I think you say, in, in 1988. And over the last couple of decades, Danae environmentalists have had to engage with that moral economy of, of coal miners that you sketch out and, and, and others. Um, how successfully would you say they've done that?
1: I think that it's been as challenging for them to do this as it was for me to do the research. Um, because for that reason like um i think coal workers understandably feel like their their jobs are under threat and they are and um and you know they see the landscape and everything's closing down um and you know generating units are shutting down which decreases the demand for coal and that sort of thing and um and so i think that they were in an existential crisis and we're all trying to respond to them and whilst at the same time trying to offer different perspectives, or in the case of environmental groups, different, their, their transition plans. And, um, and I think, I think they've been successful to a degree in, in um, understanding their perspectives, because these are, these people who are co-workers are are like extended family members, or maybe sometimes within like neighboring households, you know, so they're, they're people that are known, right? They know each other. And um, and 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 so like the environmental groups that are in Navajo, um, they do understand their issues, and so they try as much as they can to advocate for solutions that, at the same time, respect the respect the um, the need for for um, employment for these for the co-workers. So the problem is like it's hard to propose alternative energy industries in the Navajo Nation so that's where I think things are broken down like I think that um in the tribal government is unused to the kinds of of companies that are developing energy alternative energy and um in sometimes the the, the leasing uh, contracts or the the revenue sharing agreements look very different or the proposed Revenue sharing agreements look very different between like a wind company and a, and a coal company. And, and so like the, the, the people who work in the tribal government thinking about these things, they're like, well, we developed a set of policies going back to the 30s based on how we deal with coal and oil companies. So how, how flexible tribal institutions are to these new kinds of industries, that's something that I think has been less successful. And the environmental groups are trying to do that. Right. They're trying the reason why they're even talking about transition and economic development in these communities is because of the need for jobs, because of these long standing moral economy of coal in the in the communities. Otherwise, they could just oppose the industries, you know, which is what some other environmental groups do, especially the non-native ones from the outside. They're like, we just don't want coal. And that's the end of our argument. Um, And so I think they're going out of their way to try to say, hey, we don't want coal, but, you know, we understand you need work and we understand that there's a need for work and that there's a need for revenues in the reservation. So here are some other things that we think would be um, that could replace coal. Um, And there are some real there are some significant challenges to getting those other things to replace coal to actually work. Um, But, you know, that's that's I
0: think the basis of their motivation for doing that. Well, speaking of that, I mean, you have this term energy transition that you do a lot of work with. And most often we hear that, you know, on the lips of progressive activists who are painting a picture of a bright, sustainable future. But in your book, you really show us kind of hauntingly that energy transitions are happening right now. They're present tense and and in ways that look quite different from those rosy pictures. I I just wonder what you hope that your research could offer to energy policy debates today.
1: God, the thing that I really get tired of
0: is... (laughs) Future, people are trying to predict the future,
1: (laughs) which is why I guess I'm on the histories uh, podcast here. But like, um, yeah, that's what's really frustrating is, um, you know, modeling uh, any kind of modeling in the social sciences always irritates me because it it feels like it feels like pseudoscience. But (laughs) because you're not actually it's not empirical, you're not actually measuring something, you're predicting something. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, to me, I like to stick with things that are actually there and and not try to predict the future but you know i understand like we all need weather reports and so in certain (laughs) ways climate modeling is important but an economic modeling is less important but um but yeah so i think that with with all of the all that being said you know like you said a lot of it is policy um it's in policy circles or among progressive activists working with lawmakers trying to say we need um, energy transition or we need green energy or even the inflation reduction act <laughs> that, yeah. you know and things mechanisms included in that to, to to finance green energy transition anyway like what i was trying to get at is what we've been dealing with energy already and energy has transitioned and every time it transitions it's like a new wound And, um, and so like, how do we prevent that from happening? Like, we're not asking that question. We're just saying we want to get out of fossil fuels to something that is seen as more sustainable, although there's a lot of criticisms about, you know, what are the, what are the ingredients for those sustainable things like the lithium and batteries and, and, um, I think that's a major, the most, uh, or even like some people are proposing nuclear and uranium. And obviously that is, is a, is a really big problem, but, um. But yeah, so you go back to like oil leasing in the 1920s, uranium mining in the 40s, um, coal mining starting in the 50s and 60s at a large scale. Um, You know, there was coal mining before that, but it wasn't at the scale that we're talking about now. And there's another book called uh, Work in the Navajo Way, I think, by Colleen O'Neill that really documents that kind of earlier history. Um, and I build a lot on her work in, in this and it's like, oh yeah. So the people knew about coal and they used it, but it was like at this, like strip mining industrial scale and in the guise of these kind of development projects, you know, those major development projects, that's something that's new starting in the sixties and especially in the early seventies. And so that's, you know, like every moment you show a transition. And even like when I went to the, to the, to the, um, to the transcripts of the council sessions in the 1960s when Norman Little, who was our non-native attorney was talking about the energy landscape to council delegates, you know, he was predicting the future, right? He was doing this kind of future predicting and saying, this is why you need to get on coal because before you know it, nuclear is going to outpace coal and your coal resources are going to be worthless. And so you need to take advantage while the opportunity <laughs> is presented. And like that was totally wrong. <laughs> that prediction was yeah. completely off. Wow. Yet we made decisions based on it. And so I felt like, you know, and the, and what was interesting is like coal was was more valuable at that time because natural gas was too expensive, right? right. Like it has completely flipped now. But and so like natural gas, so the, how because new mining technologies have made it cheaper to get at, and um, and 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 that now um that. It's being cheaper, utilities are moving toward buying, um, buying that over coal. and that's what is dictating the energy transition. So like if we're not getting at the source of the problem, which I think are the colonial relationships between the tribe and utilities and and the tribe and fun, more fundamentally the tribe and the states, then any kind of energy transition is going to be unequal and, and going to perpetuate injustices so you know that's that was the whole point of that it's like we don't need to predict the future we can just look at the past and identify the problems there and think about what were the the mistakes or what were the things that we didn't foresee at that time that transpired differently and how can that inform how we're thinking about the present um and these current challenges going forward so anyway that that was the whole reason why i put that whole time dimension into it because i think that was important
0: Having completed now this major project, um, I believe you've turned your attention to new research on the Colorado River. Would you be willing to give us a, a sneak peek of that work at all?
1: Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm looking again more historically at the Colorado River. It's it's a, a similar type of idea. Like we we're talking about all these problems about the Colorado River drought, um, reservoir levels declining, and climate change. Right, declining snowpack. Um, the the we're in this mega drought declining precipitation and in all of these measures and metrics I find are like based on colonial infrastructure and thing and and naturalize um, water dispossession and so that's what I'm it's a huge problem you know there's about 30 tribes that have some sort of rights to the Colorado River throughout the Colorado River Basin and 22 of them are in Arizona alone uh, and so we you know, there's there's all sorts of proposed water settlements and agreements, but those concretize the the law of the river even more each time we agree to them. And And I'm fearful that we are losing alternatives uh, for how we manage the water into thinking beyond just like the, the, the idea of the Colorado Compact and these and, and these uh, percip- uh, perceptions of risk that are tied to, Um, outdated ways of thinking about the water. Um, And so it's like to historicize these metrics like acre foot, where does that come from, or, um, or beneficial use, you know, things that are like doctrinal, in how we think about water law and policy, and to like put them into a historical context, and then to demonstrate how how those things were built on um, indigenous land dispossession. And, um, and, and the, the denial of indigenous water rights and claims or in, and, and, and at a in a broader sense, you know, the way that indigenous people related to water or governed water. And so like by creating one kind of water regime, you replaced another without even understanding what it was. And so it's really interesting to think about that because it, all of the nations here have been living in this environment for hundreds of years you know, before the United States was even thought of, you know, before anybody put those three words together, United States, America, like there was water policy on the Colorado River and there was successful water policy on the Colorado River. And all of that was ignored when uh, especially uh, uh, American colonialists came in in the late 19th century, created dams and diversions and um, and then created crises. (laughs) environmental crisis seem to follow them everywhere they go. So that's something that we're going to try to unpack. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we will keep an eye out for that for sure. Yeah, but stay tuned. For, <laughs> stay tuned. <laughs> but for now, this book, again, is to carbon. <laughs> <laughs> this book is Carbon Sovereignty, Coal Development and Energy Transition in the Navajo Nation comes out today from University of Arizona Press. Its author is and my guest has been Dr. Andrew Curley. Andrew, thank you so much for your time and for this book. Thank you for the interview. I hope
1: I didn't ruin everybody's expectations of the book.
0: (laughs) No, goodness. (laughs)